Welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe and leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen. And if you're interested in some insider perks, you can pitch in a few dollars a month at patreon.com forward slash cleantechnica. That's patreon.com forward slash cleantechnica. Welcome back to Clean Tech Talk. This is your host, Michael Bernard. Some news from our company first. We're going to be raising a round of investment early in 2022. If you're interested in being in the know, you can sign up to be contacted at cleantechnica.com backslash invest backslash. You'll get financials, a pitch deck, and our founder and former CEO will personally be reaching out to you to ask you about your hopes for both Clean Technica and the investment money. We want to tailor our investment vehicle appropriately. Again, that's cleantechnica.com backslash invest backslash. Today I'm talking to the CEO of Drone Seed, Grant Canary. He's been educated in LA, tour in Italy, and Colombia. And he's got this obsession with wings, having spent time in Festus with wind turbines, in insect startups, and now UAVs. And he also has read and tweeted about one of my favorite books, The Water Knife. So we'll probably talk about that too. Welcome, Grant. Hello, hello. It's a pleasure. So why don't we start with this educational thing? And do you actually speak three languages or is it more languages? Uh, I speak English and Spanish. And uh, oh. Spanish is, uh, yeah, it's a uh, you know, classic as, a, as an expat. It's something that uh, I, I took my courses in Bogota, Bogota Colombia in Spanish. And, uh, and yeah, I read news in Spanish. But that doesn't mean I don't have a whole lot of corrections that I have to make a lot. I, I completely understand. I've, I've lived and worked around the world. I have studied seven non-English languages. I became somewhat conversational in two of them, neither of which were Spanish, which is one of the languages I failed to learn. Um, and Bogota was lovely. My wife and I enjoyed a long weekend there. I was flying up from Sao Paulo. She was flying down from Toronto. So I know the area and I know the air quality too. So, <laughs> um, but <laughs> yes, it's interesting. So why that that interesting sojourn in Turin, you know, and mm-hmm. tell, tell us about your education that led you to this, because it's an interesting educational path. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the common thread is just we can hang lots of things on is that everything that I've ever done has been in sustainability. And uh, I had a, a high school professor who helped me find kind of what my life's focus would be, which would be just climate change. And the way that I came to that conclusion was just looking at kind of what was the highest order of problems to focus on. And my conclusion was that smart people really like to work on hard problems. There are a ton of hard problems out there that we can, people from all stripes can all agree on the infant mortality, inequality, lots of things out there that are difficult. None of, none of the people working their butts off to be able to, to make those problems better would get any additional time on the clock if the worst effects of climate change came to pass. And so I very much looked at that and said, that's what I need to focus on. We need more time on the clock. We can't allow our political, our social, our economic, our educational systems to fail 
in the in the ways that they did during the Dust Bowl or for a less Euro, Eurocentric example, the Great Hunger in China. So taking a look at those scenarios, and I think the pandemic has brought that home for a lot of people as far as like, wow, a lot of the systems that we took for granted are actually people work really hard to maintain them and they are they can be fragile. So looking at that, went to school at Occidental College and then ended up uh, sort of graduating like the undergrads going, I have an undergraduate degree in sociology. What do I do now? I didn't know I could go into marketing and work on sort of the anthropology or the sociology of, of buying mentality. Mm -hmm. um, so to me, like it was either professor or a social worker. And I really, you know, given my focus, wanted to focus more on the environment. So I, I, that, that's what took me to Tarina or Turin. Neat. And then down to Columbia, which was... Uh... You know, uh, an interesting and storied place. I'm sure you had many, many concerned people at various times and assured them that it was not nearly as bad as it sounded. Do you have any, or do you have any wonderful stories like the stories that my wife and I have about tiny men in uniforms with massive guns at every corner? <laughs> well, I definitely was asked at the airport in Miami if I was sure. I started off in Medellin, which was where Pablo Escobar uh, was for most of his life. And uh, I definitely had somebody ask me very uh, getting on the plane if I was sure I wanted to go. And I was like, I don't think you're supposed to ask that. So that was that was a, a definite signal. And then this was before many, much of the world was pretty much the only folks that went to Columbia at the time that I went, 2006 to 2009, uh, were German and Israeli, the Germans on the tour and the in the boats off the coast and Israelis uh, after their two years of uh, service. And so there were only two hostels at the time in Bogota, which is a city of many millions of people. And by the time I left in 2009, 2010, things were really opening up and there was, I think, 14, something along those lines. So I got, a, got an education there. This was, uh, I, I had the experience of what it is like trying to work, not as a, as a sort of a broad uh, program, but actually, actually founding a company in the country, doing my master's degree as a part of that uh, and the thesis there, and then um, learning all of my courses in Spanish, um, pioneering how I was going to do this is pre-iPhone. So I've got an iPod with a recorder to record my lectures and uh, took photos with a digital camera, et cetera, of the boards. And I think many people who have come into foreign cultures and have had to figure out their own hacks. You know, I'm, I'm there with you. I've had that experience and I, I wouldn't trade it. Yeah, no, it's, I, I love learning new languages in, in, not because I'm actually good at it, <laughs> obviously, but because it teaches me so much about the culture and broadens my perspectives. So, but let's start, talk about your first startup because, you know, uh, Drone mm -hmm. Seed is why we're talking, but it's not your first entrepreneurial experience. You actually started Biosystems, if memory serves. And then it was bought by, you, you actually brokered the deal to have it acquired by, I think it was Entera, right? So, that is correct. Yep. So, so tell me what Biosystems um, did and then, you know, what you were doing with Entera while you were there. Because that's, I think, an interesting yeah. story as well. Well, I'll connect the dots between Play, Occidental College, Torino, and then uh, Bogota. Finished undergrad, went to Torino, got to interface with, in a very non-traditional system, with a whole bunch of scientists that we got from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. with them 
meals included for one week straight. So we were through every PowerPoint deck they'd ever created within the first two to three days. And then it was very Socratic, lots of questions and, and things along those lines. And these were folks coming from, they're all focused on environmental systems, multi-trophic fish ponds, meaning people that had in, innovated systems to allow sort of top feeders, middle feeders, and bottom feeders to all be in the same pond and manage waste better and be able to triple output. People who are recycling t-shirts into paper, people that were working on biodigesters, not just in super complex uh, systems in Germany, but also very in, in, in refugee camps in Africa and other places. And so got to, got to spend a week with each of them and really understand what they're up to. But I was really wanting to get my hands dirty and get beyond just the practical or the, or the uh, conversational, get into the execution. So I worked really hard to get into a project where J.P. Morgan England had looked at uh, how to, this was around the time of Kyoto Protocol, how to get massive source of carbon credits. And uh, so J.P. Morgan England won a big source of carbon credits. The northeast of Colombia had turned into planes due to very frequent light, lightning strikes and didn't really support rainforest at that, uh, anymore after 400 years of that. And there was a 20 year pilot project called Las Gaviotas. So the goal of JP Morgan was to put two teams, an in-house and an out-of-house team on how much would it cost to basically 10X this project to make it, I think it's about the size of Denali National Park. I have to check my numbers there, but basically to take this pilot project that had been going for 20 years and had been reforesting the plains of the Northeast, Northeast Columbia, which was a war zone with the FARC guerrillas up in that region and had managed to survive during that time for 20 years, created a hospital for both sides of that conflict. And they, JP Morgan was like, how much would it cost for us to put 20,000 people out into this area that really supports a, one cow per five acres or something along those lines and utilize these non-traditional systems from my master's program in Torino. And oh. this was a massive project. I'll pause there. No, that that's, I'm just grunting and acknowledgement. Yeah, that is a massive project and that's a cool connection. So keep going. Yeah. So we, so we, uh, we spent a couple of months on that and put together the cost estimates. I was on the out of house team, JP Morgan had their in-house team and, uh, ultimately got proposed. And my understanding is the, uh, Arribe, the president of Columbia at the time rejected the project because it was too big. It could cause the the country's currency to fail. It's one of the only countries in South America that hasn't defaulted on its currency. And they said, nope, we're not going to do this project. So I was there. I was happy to have, have been able to spend some time actually digging into the details of like, how would we install a multi-trophic fish pond? How would we take food waste, feed it to insects, and then feed it to those fish? How would we recycle human waste, utilizing biodigesters and create you know, methane as a fuel source? And so just trying to put some, some basic numbers to that, figure out contractors in the area, et cetera. So I decided to stay and transfer my master's program to finish in uh, Bogota. And that's at the Universidad de la Sabana and mm -hmm. was able to transfer to a sister program. And my master's thesis became a startup and I did not know what I was doing. So The Art of the Start was a book that was helpful to kind of give me a little bit of guidance of like, oh, here's what this might look like coming from a, a startup perspective. So founded a company in Bogota. It had a sister LLC in the States, was able to arbitrage the currency and sort of make the dollar go a lot farther in Bogota than it would have in the States and built up a thesis around insect protein. 
If you take food waste, which we waste a lot of, about half to a third of the food grown in the US in any given year goes to waste. And there's good reasons and there's bad reasons for it. Some of it's phytosanitary. If it, you know, if a fruit hits the floor in the grocery store, the grocery store is supposed to throw it away. That's for everybody's safety. But at the same time, that's a lot of wasted fruit. And so we take that, we feed it to insects. Hermetia illusens is the, is the Latin name, but it's black soldier fly is the common name. And that stuff is really good at taking food, consuming it and turning it, you know, in its larval state, it's high in proteins and fats. So you cook them and fry them and turn them into industrial insect protein. The reason to do that is because of what I was focusing on, sort of the academic side of my thesis, which is we're overfishing the world's oceans and not just the big species, but the little ones as well. And those little ones are what get ground up and turned into industrial fish feed or protein for industrial fish feed. And so my thesis was if we overfish and there's a lack of supply and salmon and other species absolutely need small ground up fish to end their feed to exist, the price is going to go up. And so it was basically modeling that out. And it was at fish mills around $600 at the time and modeled it out that it could go up as high as 2,500 bucks a ton. And uh, soy and other protein sources were around 300. And over time, that's exactly what happened. The model bore out and we saw fish meal go up to 2,000. What I didn't know is that at, at $2,000 a ton or more, you can cook soy and then the fish can eat it. Whereas if you don't cook it, it's, uh, it's, it causes spinal deformities and the fish don't do well. Um, hmm. So, but it, it went up really significantly in price, which made a lot of headway for us to utilize insect protein as a comparable good. And fish already eat flies. So it's a far more reasonable process, ecologically sensitive process to have it go in that direction than in the direction of cooking soy. So built up a pilot factory, hired four research teams from the Universidad Nacional, which is kind of the Harvard of Columbia from the public sector side and imported equipment for Vietnam and uh, kind of got the first, like, how do we get these flies to reproduce in captivity? And I got it as far as I could over the next three years and realized that I needed to have a lot more experience in figuring out what, you know, how was I going to build this out? And so I had put together a blog and I think nearly every company in the space today had hit that blog earlier because I had synthesized all the research, including Y insect or insect, depending upon how you pronounce it, agroprotein and a couple others. And so one of those hits was from a Canadian company and so was able to, over time, negotiate the acquisition of the process and the IP that have been developed that far. Yeah. And Ontario is about 40 kilometers east of me. And I think it's around 300 kilometers north of you from where you're sitting these days, right? Down in the Seattle Correct. area. We are, I'm currently in Seattle. Yeah. Yeah. I've been to Seattle many, many times. I've worked for a firm with offices there and I visited constantly. So sometimes I'm by motorcycle. <laughs> so interesting. So insect protein, but then, but, and you did a whole bunch of regulatory stuff and that's, uh, I think served you very well. we'll. Probably get into that because I want to get into the FAA approval of drones later. Cause that's a key thing that you've got that I've been tracking FAA approval of, of, you know, industrial, you know, actual business drones for a while because I'm a nerd in different ways. And that was one of the things I tracked and you guys <laughs> having that is important, but then you, you kind of went left into something else with wings, Vestas wind turbines. You know, you, you kind of 
diverted. So what was, I mean, Vestas is a great company. I have tremendous respect for it. I've written about it. I've talked to lots of people there and they're, they're, winter, they're still the biggest wind turbine manufacturer in the world. And in fact, I was actually in near, you know, just around the corner from Vesta's head office in Denmark when I was visiting Copenhagen and went into the Lego theme park there where they have little wind turbines built out of Legos. <laughs> but why, why Vestas? That was I love interesting... Legos so much and I love that they, <laughs> they make those. Yeah. I, I have, I've purchased a number of the space sets for friends, children who are five to seven and anyone who knows those space sets knows that there's 23,000 pieces in the 18, eight ages, 18 and up. I'm like, they'll get it. Don't worry. It's great. It's, it's great parent, parents, uh, child time. Yeah. Uh, and does uncle Grant come over and play with them himself? Not during COVID, but I hope uh, to, I hope to shortly. <laughs> I thought good. three was a little long for, for me to, to be building Legos, but now, now that, now that, uh, yeah, they're, they're getting older. It, it makes sense. Yeah. I, I just contextually, one of the um, co-founders of one of my uh, companies was a huge Lego fan to the point where he and I brainstormed a Lego sorting, inverting tabletop. So you could pour Legos in the top and sort them into bins at the bottom more easily. Yes. <laughs> It was like the, I'm going to mispronounce this, but like the mahjong tables, correct? Uh, somewhat, yes. Uh, but he was going high tech, and I was going low tech, and then I was saying, then we were exploring different. You know, it was just silly, um, so much silliness about Legos because all sorts of tiny little pieces. Clean Tech Talk is brought to you by Voltus, a leading technology platform connecting distributed energy resources to electricity markets, delivering less expensive, more reliable, and more sustainable electricity. Voltus is on a mission to help solve the climate crisis by unlocking the full value of distributed energy resources, and we want your help getting there. To view our open positions, visit voltus.co slash cleantechnica. That's www.voltus.co forward slash cleantechnica. Anyway, but yeah, so Vestas, talk about Vestas. Yeah, so I got through an incredibly difficult hiring process. It was a three-day camp. And apparently it's it's very similar for Teach for America or some others where it's sort of like you're you're in there with all of the other candidates and you're doing team exercises that are zero sum and you know credit to them they were just there observing kind of figuring out how people operated together so they had a program that put 34 candidates or 34 hires into a program sent us all over the world gave us an eight month eight eight month rotation in a business unit, usually doing change, you know, some kind of projects for executives. Mine were change management projects. So I started out in Portland, Oregon, which was really where my hometown, I started, I was born in Salem and then moved to uh, suburbs of Portland shortly after. And really that's, that's where I grew up. So that was nice and comfortable for me. And basically was able to work under the sales team there to build some processes out. I elected to stay in Marriott there, which was, this was the sort of, this is the extended stay Marriott and became eight months in a Marriott, man, you walk into the Marriott in Copenhagen where you were at, or, and, and people are like, Hey, have you stayed with us before? And they look at, Oh, you've definitely stayed with us before. So I was able to sort of get some of that background. And I did that because I wanted to spend more time with my colleagues. And then what my next rotation was in China and Beijing. And that Sweet. was under... Yeah, I was, in, I was in construction and working under the VP of construction there and um, just doing a number of different projects. One was to clear out an inventory yard because the targets uh, were of various government officials 
were at the time to purchase the turbines, but they weren't to install or connect them to the grid. So <laughs> it, this is the this is the hazards of setting a KPI and not uh, not anticipating how it might be I might be hacked or miss you know kind of not achieve the the the, the actual goal of the KPI. So. It and was, China, it, and China was coming out of, at that time, if memory serves, China was coming out of its uh, extreme shift of responsibilities and accountabilities downwards, and more centrality of control for certain bunch, bunch of stuff around the economy had shifted back to Beijing. So it was uh, 1978 through 82 that they'd decentralized to provincial control, much more like the US states model. And sorry, I've just been reading books about China recently. <laughs> yeah. And well, so, and, and uh, you know, yeah. it's a society run by engineers. So they're very much like focused on how do we, how do we, how do we create the incentive structures? And I think people in, in who have set KPIs and have uh, sort of, especially in the largest organizations, I'm like, oh, okay, well, we keep achieving KPI, but we did we actually achieve the goal? Yeah. And uh, so this was, which was, this was one sort of mismatch that had occurred there. And yeah, uh, and, and, and to yeah, be clear, was, China's, you know, some of the stuff about coal. It's the same kind of thing. There were explicit, you know, expectations about jobs and industrial expenditures and stuff like that that turned into more coal plants, which are now running at significantly diminished utilizations or wasted assets. You know, not to say that there isn't waste everywhere. There happened to be waste in a couple of spaces in the energy sector. But China, to be clear, you've been probably followed the story from last year as well. As much wind and solar as the rest of the world combined in 2020 during COVID you know, massively exceeded their targets, whereas every other country in the world did not meet their targets. So interesting stuff about China, but you got to actually be in Beijing near the Beijing Olympics too, didn't you? I did. Did you get the benefit um, of the clean air stuff or did you, did you get to see the, the, um, the bird's nest stadium? I, I rotated out uh, prior to, but I was able to sort of, uh, you know, observe from afar, but I, the, the air quality to me was something that uh, I think being in the rest of the world, in Italy, in Colombia, in China, was something that w- gave me a bit of a head start in understanding what the rest of the world was experiencing with climate change. Yep. And within Beijing, the air quality, I was there for a diplomatic event where there is a unnamed source of uh, parts per million air pollution monitor. It is, I won't say who runs it, but basically it is, it is, monitors the parts per million of pollution in the atmosphere. People are starting to become much more familiar with what that means given the wildfires in the US, but they hit the limit of what the parts per million could pick up, uh, which I think at the time was 500 parts per million or something to that effect. And so this got to out every hour or whatever it was. Twitter was new at the time, uh, or newish, and, uh, they didn't have a reading for it. So they just said crazy bad. And I became a diplomatic incident where China did not appreciate that and did yep. not appreciate it being highlighted. So that was taken down quickly, but there was a, the, the sort of air pollution quality that you see comes from those coal fired power plants. And there's an existing and established base of those. And that is so for people who are experiencing wildfire and others, that is some of the levels of the air quality. I, I experienced that in LA I always loved Pacific Northwest summers because the sky was just this gorgeous blue and the air was super pure. I disliked LA end of days uh, because the, the quality of light was so yellowy and that was kind of the quality of light most of the time in China. And yep. um, 
So traveling to Australia, traveling to other places, like in India, China, other areas kick on the coal-fired power plants, people were taking vacations and moving their kids out of school, similar to people moving away from wildfire areas so that their kids aren't affected by the air pollution and their lungs aren't polluted. China at the time was having people cut show up in hospitals with black lungs that looked like they'd smoked two packs a day that had never smoked a day in their life. So that was a, a big source of frustration amongst the Chinese populace is that those levels of pollution. And then also just people trying to figure out how to live in a climate change world. And that was a that was an early indicator to me of where we were headed over time. And sort of sharing that anecdote in various means, people have said, no, and I'm like, no, that's this is... These are Australians, these are uh, Sri Lankans, these are Indians, these are people who are like, this is how we like sort of move around during the year to avoid air pollution. And, and that is something I think that we're now starting to feel the effects of in the U.S. and Canada. Yeah, well, it, we'll stay on China a little bit longer because there's another tie for what you're doing today. Something that most people don't know, you probably do know this because of you know, what you do, but they've had the biggest tree replanting reforestation program in the world and running since 1990. Last time I checked, they'd planted uh, an area the size of France with roughly 38 million trees. That was two or three years ago. So they're probably well over 40 billion trees now. And, you know, an area more than the size of France. And, and I think it was in 2019 or 2018, they actually turned 60,000 soldiers into members of their military into tree planters. So they're, you know, they, they have a, had a different model than you in terms of force leverage, in terms of getting lots of trees planted. Um, but that tree planting exercise had, you know, multiple purposes, one of which was they deforested most of China into, you know, the poor environmental approaches of Mao and stuff. The second one was, the, the intent was to help clean the air for Beijing and other northern cities that were experiencing that. And, you know, the downsides there, lots of monoculture, lots of inappropriate you know, tree planting exercises, lots of the wrong trees in the wrong places. Have you spent time looking at or analyzing the Chinese reforestation program? We're definitely aware of it. And it's something that from our perspective is absolutely what the world needs. Movements, whether they're political, social, or otherwise, are successful in meaningful places by having one rule, which is that if there are folks that are that are taking in good faith, the best efforts, even if you don't agree with those efforts or you have criticism, uh, criticism or whatnot, don't talk smack on them. We are absolutely in favor of people doing everything to the nth degree that we can to mitigate the worst effects of climate change. And one approach is definitely convert soldiers into tree planters. I often have the thought that our National Guard is probably more productive as a force, thinking about how we're going to respond to natural disasters, and given that the Army Corps of Engineers was responsible for many of the dams built across the United States, it seems to me that there would be a very natural progression into start leveraging a lot of our budget that goes into the military into climate change adaptation. And, you know, let's be thoughtful about how we do that, but which was not always the case with, uh, with our dams and the Army Corps of Engineers. But that is a big budget, and that should go towards climate change mitigation because that's one of the greatest threats to the populace in the United States. So absolutely in favor of the, of the Great Green Wall. There's that project in China. There's a similar project in Africa. And then in the U.S. during the Dust Bowl, shelter belts, planting of trees to mitigate the worst effects of, the, of soil erosion was a Roosevelt initiative. 
And prior to becoming president, that's where he focused his time and efforts. And that is largely credited with reducing or mitigating some of the worst effects of the Dust Bowl here in America in the 20s. Now, unfortunately, some of those lessons are being forgotten as massive farming corporations look to maximize acreages. So hopefully we can get back to some of those practices here in the Midwest as well. Absolutely. And, and, you know, and uh, of course, up here, we're experiencing the pine beetle problem uh, that, you know, just for people who don't live in the Pacific Northwest and don't pay attention to this, pine borer beetle is a more Southern species that is mostly called by cold winters. Guess what? We haven't had as many cold winters. They've migrated North and they've run into a lot of reforestation that was pine monoculture, you know, in areas that we've cut down before. And so that's kind of a you know, the, the worst possible combination invasive species with young, not hardy uh, plants because they didn't grow up in a, not, not hardy trees because they didn't grow up in a climax forest where they were stunted for growth for 80 years and then got their sh- chance. And as a result, had really, really dense cores of outer bark that were really hard for beetles to penetrate. And there were a lot of them. It was pine borer, bore, you know, gourmet heaven. And so it killed a lot of trees and they then become dry. And when climate change comes in with prime conditions for wildfires, we have dead trees, we have drought, they're pine trees. So the pine resin, you know, goes up really fast. I mean, I think I'm getting this pretty close, Grant, but you're the expert in this. So, you know, extend or, or refute what I'm saying about some of these things. Yeah, so I I won't be specific to that, and it's hard to be an expert on everything. What what Drone Seed is phenomenal at is integrating the talents of a, of a very large team. People coming from the military with drone experience for large aircraft that are autonomous. People coming from PhDs in silviculture, which is really the focus on growing of trees or forests, and doing it from both the academic and the commercial side. People with post-fires, uh, post, sorry, um, masters in post-fire ecology, people coming mm-hmm. from the nursery sector, people coming from software. So where what, what I can say to, to what you're saying there is that, yeah, the monocultures pose a risk. They pose a risk for insects. And we're going to be absolutely shellacked across the internet if we don't say that is, in many cases, climate change fueled in a, in a really significant way, because a lot of those insects, one of the things that kills them is freezing. And when there is less freezing, ha- freezing happening because of climate change, then the, the, that larva lives. And so there's a lot much bigger populations. Yes, monocultures aren't helpful for that. Young stands versus old stands, those are some of the defense mechanisms, et cetera. But it is absolutely fueled in a big part by climate change. And so that is a risk similar to climate change fueling some of the big fires that we're seeing. And I've got some things to say about that and try and ring the alarm bell about most people know like, yes, trees are, trees are in trouble with fires, but there is a much bigger sort of threat than I think most folks are aware of. So we'll, we'll talk about that here shortly. Well, let's keep on trees for a little bit longer. You know, mm-hmm. part of this is I, you know, if, if I sounded like I knew more about trees than I should, it's because I read The Hidden Life of Trees by Wolaben and Flannery et al. You've probably seen that book and probably had people recommend it to you if you haven't read it yourself. Great book. I recommend it to people. Matthew but, Guy, our head of uh, biological R&D, loves that book. Yeah. Same with American Canopy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a stunning book. Ch- changed how I thought about uh, trees, um, you know, and I've stood in clear cuts in British Columbia and wept. You know, that is what it is, right? It's just a terrible, terrible thing. And there's much better forms of, of, of you know, harvesting 
forests so that they actually maintain health. So let's talk about trees. Right now, you're, you're all over your stuff and all over what you've been talking, all over your website, all over your uh, media, you've been talking about reforestation in the aftermath of fire. And, and the first question I had around that was, was that your original intent or when you were conceptualizing drone seed, was the intent afforestation, replanting trees where they weren't or reforesting after harvest? I mean, what, 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 or did it, was it always, was it the impetus always fires? Um, the impetus came from how can I, as an individual, make a dent in the worst effects of climate change, make a dent in emissions, emissions or capture? How do we capture that carbon out of the atmosphere? So, so my origin story, and this is one of the things that I'm, I'm asked about a ton because there are people are making, looking to make that same jump. And you're, you're looking to figure out how you can spend eight hours of your day working on climate check out my climate journey. There's resources there to kind of basically shift your job from what you're doing today into something that affects climate. And I, if, if, if people aren't doing that today and trying, it is hard. If they aren't trying to take a hard look at how to do that, I don't understand because I look at kind of the trend lines and where we're headed with the Dust Bowl, the Great Hunger in China and others. And I think to myself, like, my golden years are going to be ugly, the current trend lines. I want to avoid that. And it's not our kids. It's not our grandkids. It is us that are going to suffer the worst effects of climate change here. And so I plan to live another 20 years. And if we follow the current trajectory of what's happened just between 2016 and 2020, it looks bad. And so how can we put as many talented individuals as possible, whatever talent they have, wherever they're coming from onto something that is, that would be my, my focus and my suggestion to folks. But my journey in sort of trying to make that same assessment was, okay, I focused on insects and reducing sort of pressures on fish population. I got that to a good place. It's still going strong today. We're building out more larva factories, turning that into more sustainable fish protein. I've worked with Vestas Wind Energy. That industry is rocking. We've uh, got solar and wind coming online. I, you know, long time back, I had worked at U.S. Green Building Council, and I was looking for how do I make that dent. And so I was reading through and looking about my what my next focus was going to be. And Lean Startup by Eric Rise was a a great book that helped me sort of get into the rapid prototyping, the minimum viable product, et cetera. And so I started working through a lot of ideas on how I might be able to do that. And some of them, great ideas. Uh, I know that because Amazon and others patented them, but I was in no place uh, able to have the capital or to be able to sort of like create that minimum viable product for them. Other ideas were terrible ideas. And I mocked them up and put them in front of people. And they were like, don't spend five years of your life on that. Like, I do not want to buy that. Um, <laughs> so I was, you know, complaining about this to a friend. And as good friends do at a bar, they, they, he, <laughs> Uh, he talks with smack to me and was like, well, I guess you're going to be a dirty hippie and go plant trees. And I had already participated in that large tree planting project, trying to figure out how to scale up tree planting in Bogota and uh, in the Marandua region of Colombia and wanted to figure out, okay, well, what, let's take a look and see what, what people are doing in my home country for as far as planting, planting trees. And Colombia had a much more developed system for planting trees, with, with, but the ground was flat. And yeah. um, in the U U.S., it's all manual labor. In Canada, it's, it's, uh, it's college students. It's a great way to pay off student debt uh, in yep. the summer, high-paying job. 
get in shape, train for Ironmans. And uh, in the U.S., it's largely uh, HB1 visas. And so I'm sort of trying to look at, like, okay, well, what might make a dent in that? What might make that faster, better? And that's where drones that can fly come in. And, and I, you know, didn't come to that realization by just sort of like, having having a pint, so to speak. It was much more, I talked to everybody I could find in the field, nonprofits, for-profits, timber companies, et cetera, sort of figure out what had been done in the past, what would be, what would move the needle forward, and then sort of leverage those lessons from the community to kind of advance what we were, what, the approach that we would eventually take. Yeah, and it is an interesting problem because you, you, you hit on one of the challenges. It was not something that was easily automated in a productive way a decade or two ago, you know, part of my background is that I uh, sat on the back, sat behind on a, a trailer behind a tractor, and the trailer was a tree planting tractor. It opened a furrow, I dropped a seedling in, it closed the furrow behind, and I did that with twelve thousand seedlings over two days. I think it was sixteen hours on the back of the tractor, and lots of great Creamore beer. But that was on twenty-five acres of re- <laughs> of afforested farmland in Ontario. It was flat and you could drive a tractor over it and it was previously tilled land. You can't do that in places where there've been forest fires. You can't do that on the side of hills that have been, you know, where you, that have been clear cut. It's just not viable. And so, you know, drone technology, you know, 15 years ago, the battery to lifespan stuff, you couldn't do what you're doing today. You know, it wasn't an automatable process in that way. And, you know, in the CNN uh, clip that I watched, they talked about dumping a bunch of seeds from helicopters, you know, just kind of scattershot, you know, and th- that's very different than what you're doing, which is a very precision agriculture approach to tree planting on uh, inhospitable terrain. So, so let's start talking about that. Let, let's, you know, talk about your drones and kind of step through you know, uh, how you arrived at drones with eight foot wingspans that carry 60 pound parcels of seeds in specially wrappered containers, because there's a whole bunch of innovations in there. And, you know, it's not like you kind of had this happen, had this thoughts five, six years ago, and all of a sudden it was there. There's a lot of work there. So, so talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we, we talked to a lot of People who explain kind of what you what you described there, which is a helicopter dumping a whole bunch of seed across a landscape, and then the question became like, well, is that just a big squirrel buffet? It, it, are mice, squirrel, others just going to eat that seed? And as we're starting to see now with the there's a frontiers paper on uh, the challenges to the reforestation pipeline, covered in wired, covered in fast company. Seed is a very valuable resource today, and we'll, we could talk about that in the macro context of fires, but there's not enough of it. The supply chain wasn't built for the fires that we're seeing today. Natural regeneration is decreasing, and the seed that we get comes from orchards, and we don't have enough orchards because it takes 20 to 40 years to spin up an orchard, and we haven't been thinking about climate change and the increase in fires. So as a result, natural regeneration is declining, human intervention is limited, and so uh, how do we then reforest utilizing seed and should we just dump it out of, a, out of a helicopter? And so some of the lessons we learned early on talking were, hey, seed's valuable. What are you going to do about predation? And what are you going to do about desiccation or drying out? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, we tried some things. We tried, a, they, there was a sort of a tree bombing, taking C-17s and dropping one to two-year-old trees grown in a, in a nursery out of the back. 
Well, if you read uh, the Kissinger biography, like aerial bombing is incredibly inaccurate. And so that is, you know, they were dumping trees and rivers and existing forests on roads. And there was, you know, anyone who's a tree planter who's been, you know, especially in Canada, will know that you drop a crate of seedlings off the back of a truck, just like a couple of feet. Well, it decreases the survival rate from like 95% to like 60. So imagine what it's going to do coming out of the back of a C-17. That's going to decrease, it's going to be a shock to those roots. And so, you know, we the tree machine gun, uh, we've met some of the folks. They're like, hey, we looked at it. Here's the prototype from the 70s. And similarly, trying to sort of figure out like, okay, well, they, that, they were in that, that approach, again, big problems with like one to two year old trees and kind of what that looks like or seeds and how, how do you precision target and things along those lines. So yeah, I, mean, I think if, me- if memory serves, it was kind of a sabotage. So my background is a part of my background is I grew up on Air Force bases. Uh, my dad was uh, in a radar tech with the military and I grew up in, you know, Northern Canada and Europe and jets and, you know, C-130s and C-17s. But so that round, the concept there is it's a, it's a, a, aerodynamic shell around something and you can kind of put the seedling inside the sabbat and then it penetrates the ground if memory serves was the intent mm-hmm. but, it kind of, it, but to your point the precision bombing has a long history of smart of increases of smart munitions and they get really expensive really fast so <laughs> you know, I, I can just see how much wastage there would be with a c-130 dropping you know, pallets of these sabat loaded seedlings out the back. Yeah, to, yeah, uh, that would be incredibly expensive and not not particularly effective. So, well, in those trees, we spend a year, two years growing them in a nursery, and uh, you know, sort of just dropping you know, the the miss rate of well, fifty percent landed on the gravel road. That's not great. That's expensive. So yeah, uh, yeah. So that's thus drones, and thus how do we? How do we avoid the shock to those trees? How do we how do we avoid predation? How do we avoid drying out or desiccation? And how do we get them in the right spot? And so, over we got started in uh, Seattle and uh, Texas in 2016. Our first check for, came from a, a small group of angels, and this is again for people who are looking on like how do I start my startup in clean tech, like. We absolutely want everybody to get into clean tech because all clean tech is is interdependent and trees buy time for direct air carbon capture to come online yep. and we need to wow. de- decarbonize and electrify everything. So the reason I'm sort of dropping these breadcrumbs is this is how you might get into the space is because we need the innovations. And so I, I'm, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defer just a little bit, Did, you know, be simply because you said the magic bad words, direct air, air capture. I'm, I'm actually, the, the Global Carbon Capture Institute used to, Carbon Capture Institute used to actually have a page on me because of, as an enemy of the state. <laughs> the mechanical stuff doesn't scale. Uh, the, the way I put it is that we have this amazing ancient nanotechnology where it comes in a little seed form and it, it actually puts solar panels above the ground and pipes down to water sources and then bootstraps itself and turns into a carbon eating machine that creates building material. We call it a tree. And it's much easier to plant a trillion trees than it is to scale up the direct air capture stuff. So I'll stop there. You know, I, I'm, I, I'm absolutely with you uh, uh, for obvious reasons. A hundred percent. I, I, you got I, into the right I've part spent zero of direct time air focusing capture. on direct air carbon capture, but I am I I will I will continue to follow follow the rule here, which is that I I'm not going to talk smack on anyone that's <laughs> making a good faith effort to mitigate the worst effects of climate change and the things that the things that may be tried 
that uh, you know historically have failed or the things that uh, that that seem nuts to try. The only the only exception is uh, in, in, there are a couple exceptions or, which are things that may do more harm than good. And so yeah, if it falls in that category, I'm, I'm opposed. I have a different um, but, position. Uh, you as a CEO have one <laughs> position. I, I I do policy analysis and provide clear and robust guidance back to anybody who will listen about what works and what doesn't. And you guys are in the part that works, which is part of the reason I'm talking to you. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Thanks.